from Luminary and Built It Productions. It's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, writer, director, and actor Chad Sanders. I was clawing, man. I was scraping. I was trying to do anything to just feel like somebody who my colleagues and my bosses could see as someone who should get promoted. You can start to see the future leaders of the company forming their fraternity sorority, and I just knew I wasn't in it. How Chad Sanders' lived experience as a black man taught him how to understand his own power to be a leader. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chad Sanders is a director, actor, and writer for TV and movies. He's worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood, including Spike Lee and Issa Rae. He's also published a book about leadership called Black Magic. The book chronicles Chad's journey growing up as a black man in mainly white environments, schools, the workplace, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Black Magic describes how Chad learned to reflect on the trauma of racism and how those painful experiences gave him the tools to handle adversity. In the book, Chad also interviewed dozens of black leaders and entrepreneurs and discovered that all of them shared similar experiences and also came to understand the connection between their own trauma and their ability to manage challenges today. Chad grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Both of his parents worked in education. My parents were industrious. They always had a plan. They always have a plan. And they bought very young this townhouse in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is a suburb right outside of D.C. And when I got six years old, we moved to a suburban house. The demographics changed a little bit. It was whiter. A couple families had guns. And, you know, as my parents started teaching us what we could and could not do in that neighborhood now that we were living among a whiter group of people. One of the things that my dad taught me with uh, some fervor was you're not going into our neighbor's houses. You don't know what they have in there and you don't know what intentions they have for you. And so that was something that I held on to. There's a a story you tell in your book and it's, it's a very hard story to read because um, 
I've got little kids, and I, I think of you as a little boy, and you tell a story about your little kid, six, seven years old, who was a white friend of the two of you, um, snuck downstairs to watch Malcolm X, the film Malcolm X, and, and his parents didn't allow you to watch it. They caught you. They were very angry. And you stayed up all night at this boy's house, terrified that the family was going to hand you over to to the police or to the Klan. Or, I mean, it's so hard to read because it's clear that trauma was kind of inside of you yeah. from, from, from the moment <laughs> you left the womb. Um, and, and it was very present, even as a little, little boy. Yeah. Well... You know, the way you framed it and the way you said it was that we went downstairs to watch Malcolm X and um, we really were just turning the TV on, you know, and whatever was on was what was going to stream into our little brains. And, you know, I write TV and movies now and I think about I have a three year old nephew. I have two twin four month old nephews. And I think about when they go turn on that phone or go turn on that computer, laptop, iPad, TV, they're not going in there looking specifically for something. They're going to get whatever comes for them. And in that moment, Spike Lee's Malcolm X was what came for me. And I don't remember specifically if that moment came before or after I really understood my race, like really understood that I was a black person. Um, Because I think I was five or six and I even detail in the book when I had the realization that I was a black person was a moment that happened with that same kid in preschool. But I don't remember which came first or second, but I just knew I was the prey in that movie, in that scene where where Malcolm X's father is on those train tracks. And I knew those people with the hoods were the other people. And that is sort of the power of cinema is that, you know, you just... I was just washed away in it. And and I, as that little six-year-old boy, I, I just, for the rest of that night, I had my ears open. I had my eyes open. I wasn't sleeping. I was rolling around. I was just worried, you know, is this family that I think cares about me, that I think loves loves me, my friend's family, are they going to betray me and sell me out to this thing? And, um, you know, guy, I'm still trying to, I guess, pacify that same fear sometimes. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about early in the book is about the dinnertime ritual. That dinnertime, you write that my parents protected dinnertime, very specifically protected it. And it wasn't just about no distractions. It was about something much, much deeper. What was the what was the dinnertime ritual and, and how did you begin to understand the importance of it? Looking back on it now, I, I see it and understand it differently My parents are educators. In my childhood, what I didn't understand was that the reason they were protecting the space of our home and the space of our dinner table was so that they were the primary voices of the truth and of history and of meaning for my sister and I. Once we left those doors in the morning and once we went to school, you know, and we were under some other adult's purview, we were under that person's worldview as well. And if a kid in the neighborhood came and rang the doorbell while we were eating dinner, it was a, you know, that door was getting slammed in their face. Not, and that's no exaggeration. A Seventh-day Adventist, a Cutco knife solicitor, <laughs> a ringing telephone, like whatever it was, 
they were going to block out that noise to spend those hour to two hours with their kids and and with each other, you know, so we could feel like we had a home base. One one of the the things you, you talk about in your book is that when you experienced quote unquote casual racism mm. at school from you know, in predominantly white schools, the lesson from your parents wasn't just ignore it or just stay away. It was like, no, confront and embrace confrontation, which is actually yeah. kind of a a lesson that you would then assimilate into your life forever. Yeah. You, you know, my parents gave me that lesson in a lot of ways. One of the ways was, by example, my mom, when we read Huckleberry Finn in class, we did a read aloud. And when the kids, you know, the white kids are just spitting the nigger word out, you know, as we read through the book. And I went home and I told her that because it made me uncomfortable. I wasn't even, you know, I didn't even really couldn't form form the words as to why it made me uncomfortable at that time. But I don't think I had gotten the entire story out. And my mom was pulling out of the garage to go confront the teacher face to face and tell her that was that was dead. Like there would be no more Huckleberry Finn in that classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think both my parents subscribed to the idea that a coward dies a thousand deaths. Mm -hmm. And we in our family want to die but once. And uh, that is complicated when you're a black person because you can confront in a way that scares the wrong person in a way that embarrasses or humiliates the wrong person. And the fear is that that can really cost you your freedom, your life, your reputation. And guy, you know, working in Hollywood, there's bullshit all around me at every turn, you know, And, and I have to set people straight all the time, you know, and I, it's complicated guy and I'm still trying to figure it out because I know that that was a gift they gave me was the idea that you must confront when you feel discomfort and it helped me later in my racial journey but there's this lingering fear you know that you're going to get blackballed or you're going to get you know some kind of retribution and I just have to keep pushing through it at every turn and, and a lot of that is I hear my parents saying they never said it in these words but they demonstrated it just don't be a coward man mm. your book is it's not only a memoir, but it's also a sort of an examination of the kind of things that a black leader confronts and experiences over the course of his or her lifetime. One of the things that you write about in school was that um, because you had to be in these environments where casual racism or or microaggressions or kids reading Huck Finn and, and not even thinking for a moment how, how how using the N-word and saying it out loud could be traumatic for you or maybe two other kids in the classroom, that you had you felt a need, a compelled to speak out about it. And you write that because you spent you had to spend so much of your energy doing that, it actually didn't allow you to just focus on being a student, which is what most of the other kids could do. That's right. It became it became another job. In some ways, it became my primary job, you know, hmm. which was I saw my reading retention suffer. Right. Hmm. Which is to say, when we would do class readings together, I would find that at the end of a reading, when the teacher asked, what did we learn? What did this person say to that person? What did Shakespeare mean by X, Y and Z? I would find that sometimes it would be foggy for me and 
it was because we would hit some place in Huckleberry Finn or the history of the Middle Passage or whatever. We would hit some snag and you said it right. It, it was feeling, you know, I would feel anger. I would feel twisting resentment or confusion or that doesn't sound right or that that seems too conveniently expressed or that does that doesn't make sense with what my parents just told me about that same thing last night or what I read for myself in the books that we have at home you know and at that point when you hit that sort of snag it's hard to plow through it so first I saw it in my reading comprehension I was like all right why can't I retain the same way the other 29 gifted and talented kids in this classroom are retaining and the reason is because I would start focusing on those feelings Mm. and trying to detangle them and unpack them in my mind. That same thing happens in a boardroom. That same thing happens if somebody says, I seem like a nice boy in a pitch meeting, which somebody has said to me recently. (laughs) And what I've realized now as an adult, and I think I actually did an okay job of it then even as a kid is, well, if I got to stop because I can't retain anymore right now, we're all going to stop because you're not going to get an advantage in retention going through the next 15 minutes of this conversation while I'm sitting in myself stewing and trying to take care of myself emotionally. We all need to stop the train real quick. But that is an advantage and a privilege I have right now that everybody doesn't have in whatever, you know, a nanny doesn't have for the family that she works with Mm -hmm. if they say something disrespectful. What do you think that the experience of having to constantly represent or constantly defend or constantly educate other people, what do you think that has actually forced you to to kind of become? I mean, it it's <laughs> it's sort of a an enormous series of things that from an early age you you just intuitively had to take on. But at the same time, yeah. strangely and paradoxically, it's what made you who you are and who you will become. Yeah. Well, that is an existential question. <laughs> and I think about it every day. Uh, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll speak to the paradox of it, but first I'll just respond emotionally. It makes me a little bit of a live wire. You know, I have still pursuits in the tech industry, but I wasn't going to make it climbing the corporate ladder. Um, I needed to put my flag in an emotion industry which is this one which is art and that's because I was I was just going to feel depressed and sad and alone and isolated and boring if I kept numbing and sawing off pieces of myself day after day after day so that I could be a nice smooth slippery luge for white men hmm. and now that I've sort of zagged against that. Yeah. For one, it's made me more myself, to be honest with you. I think this sort of expression, and I won't just say anger, because of course there's anger, but there's also just humor and joy and sadness and rage and every piece of a spectrum of emotion. I think all of that simmers beneath all black people, you know? And I feel grateful that I get to speak it impartially mm-hmm. it's helping me build a business companies that probably wouldn't hire me a few years ago will pay me to come talk about this stuff and create a space where their black employees who reasonably so are scared to say certain things 
have space to watch somebody else say those things in front of their bosses. You know, that is incredibly liberating. But the other side of that is I have more to say and I have more to express through every medium than just the black experience and the black struggle. And I try to watch closely people like Ava DuVernay, Mm -hmm. Spike Lee, Issa Rae, Jay-Z, Beyonce, you know, people who have created leverage for themselves by expressing their black experience to then do whatever they want and then express every feeling that they have, every worldview, every opinion, you know, every point of view. That's really the mission. And what I'm up against, I think, guy, is is people who would want to box me in as some sort of frankly i gotta say it as as an activist because mm-hmm. that's that's not really what i am you spent a lot of your time as a kid in in high school and you write about this um feeling like you had to assimilate into white yeah. predominantly white culture or or, or sort of white centered culture um and then you went to morehouse college um in Atlanta, which really sounds like it was this kind of transformational experience, because all of a sudden, you know, as you write in the book, you didn't you didn't have to pretend like you were some some something different, like you were accommodating other people. That's right, and the assimilation process is it was more become something that pleases and comforts white people, not become one of them because they're not looking for more white people. They're looking for more people that make them feel comfortable. When I went to Morehouse, I felt like I could breathe. There were black people everywhere and they weren't like TV and movie black people. They weren't mystical, magical Negroes. They weren't dressed like Bagger Vance, you know, They were everybody. They were every different type of person you can imagine and black. And that gave me, I thought, permission to be whoever, you know, just Mm. am I a nerd? Am I cool? Am I edgy? Am I smart? Am I creative? Am I an athlete? Am I, you know, in a frat? Am I what like who and what am I even even beyond just the, the available words to describe a person, you know? And I kind of could get lost in that. It was Atlanta, the city itself, which is black as hell. It was everywhere you go. There was just this like, you know, trap music had sort of taken the world by storm and the heart of it was there in Atlanta. So there was this bass, this thundering bass background coming from the cars and the speakers everywhere. But beneath us, I felt this connection to everybody (laughs) while at the same time completely contained in myself. And I really do believe I grew into a full human being uncontextualized by white people in that place. And, and, and I've, and I hold on to it so dearly, you know, I was on life support when I was at Google, but I have it so strongly now. I want to ask you about Google because you went from that experience, which was so empowering and so important for you and, and your personal development to Google, which from the outside seems like, wow, you got a job at Google. And, and you probably thought that and your family was pr- probably saying that, oh, my gosh, you're going to, to Google to California. And then you get there and you kind of are back to that world that you were in before you got to Morehouse. Yeah. Um, worse. Hmm. You know, where I'm 
where I come from, Silver Spring, Maryland, D.C. metropolitan area, you know, there's so many black people in, in the DMV. There's my parents were there. My basketball team was black. My Cub Scout group was black. My church was black. I had community. It was just my classrooms that were white. And Google, man, Silicon Valley, my life was not only was it surrounded by white culture, but it was this superpower company built by two white guys, a third, the CEO at the time, Eric Schmidt. And as you sort of descend the levels of hierarchy from there, it gets a little more diverse as you go down each layer all the way down to the cooking and cleaning staff. But for the most part, it's built and run by white men. Mm-hmm. And the culture, you know, the culture is thus. The culture was we didn't wear suits and ties. We wore a different white uniform. We wore Google T-shirts, pinwheel hats. People walked around with those sort of singular toed wet shoes. And, you know, the the mantra was bring your whole self to work. And that mantra has spread throughout that industry. And I just got a call from a friend a few days ago who got fired by his third tech startup in Denver, Colorado, because he wore a suit to work the first few days and they told him, wear what you want tomorrow. And I guess he came in with his earring and his jeans and Jordans and He's got a thick beard. He's a big black man with a big black voice. And, you know, he's crying on the phone telling me this is a guy I've known since I was six years old. He's crying. He's sobbing into the phone telling me in so many different ways, this industry and the people who run it are just telling me there is no space for you. And I'm 33. I need to feed myself. I want to start a family. And every time the feedback is just doesn't feel like a culture fit. When we come back in just a moment, Chad decides to confront that work culture and in the process starts to understand himself. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. 
If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2010, and Chad has found himself alone once again in a predominantly white space, Google. And instead of confrontation, Chad is trying to fit in, which doesn't work. I changed how I dressed. Frankly, I changed who I dated. I changed what kinds of food I ate. I lied. I made up stories about trips to international countries. And I never left the country until I worked at Google. It was so humiliating. It's still humiliating now, less so because I can say it out loud. But I was clawing, man. I was scraping. I was trying to do anything to just feel like and look like somebody who my colleagues and my bosses could see as someone who should get promoted, as someone who should be a manager there, as someone who who could one day be a level five. I remember looking at myself in the mirror different days and thinking, oh, got to go cut my facial hair off. Oh, let me go to Warwick Parker and get these glasses. Um, I mean, frankly, guy, I was I was uh, I was trying to look like you, man. I was I was trying to look and sound and be like some version of you. I wasn't familiar with of you in 2010 at that time, but you know what I'm saying, right? Um, Of course. It's that is the San Francisco, Silicon Valley, the poster. That's what everybody was, even the women, many of them were trying to emulate this thing. And the further and further that you were from it, as far as I can see, the more it hurt and the more it was humiliating. And all the while I was giving more and more and more power to that image and to that type of person by trying to emulate them, by just reflecting back to them what they already thought was good. What what was it that, because you, you write about how it also affected your work performance, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a point where you, you decided enough, I'm going to stop this code switching. Yeah. And I'm just going to stop playing this game. What... How did you come to that, that, that kind of realization? It was failure, repeated failure, and repeatedly still trying so hard to become and still seeing that I was being treated by managers and some colleagues as funny little brother. My, my ideas weren't taken seriously. My questions were either ignored or, or sort of sniffed at. I didn't get fired, and a lot of people that looked like me did for culture fit reasons. It was almost like they saw potential that I could eventually learn this operating system, but I was not there. And I was watching colleagues get promoted, and I was watching, you know, you can start to see the future leaders of the company forming their fraternity sorority, and I just knew I wasn't in it. It was a type of repeated failure that was saying, 
you are a failure at this and you're never going to turn this around. You might as well just stop trying. So there was no moment of like, oh, you know, I'd be better off just being myself. I surrendered, you know, I gave Mm -hmm. up. And when I started walking into that office as myself again, and started listening to my music again, uh, at that time, Lil Wayne, Kanye West, Gucci Mane, like when I started letting people who looked like me, letting their spirits seep back into my bones and back into my own spirit, my colleagues definitely saw me differently, but I saw myself differently. And then I started to form a voice and an identity again. It's, I mean, it's when you are fully expressing who you are, you feel liberated, right? You feel like you're not hiding something or that you're not trying to be something that that you're not. I think so. And it actually in your career trajectory completely changed when you when you pushed that away, when you said, "You know what? This is not who I am." It changed because I just stopped acting like someone who was afraid to ruffle feathers, who was afraid to rub people the wrong way, who was afraid to sound like an idiot. And people start to sort themselves around that. They start to self-select. They start to decide, do I want this type of live wire in my life or do I want to get away from this person? And that kind of clarity helped me. The people who believed in me, the people who felt attracted to that sort of energy started to sidle up beside me and say, hey, I have this opportunity for you. Do you want to meet this person? Do you want to be in this room? Come on. And the people who thought, this guy's scary and weird and he's an asshole. They got the hell away from me. My emails to them went unanswered. Authenticity provokes that. Um, you become like a fire a little bit, like a campfire. You know, it's like there are some animals that hate heat and they will run away from that thing. And there are some animals that are looking for that, you know, and they come and they get close. And and I needed that sort of self-selection. So I guess around this time, this is like um, 2014, uh, you leave Google and, and I guess for, for a while you work for like a smaller tech startup. Yeah. But then from, from what I understand, you kind of start to get into entrepreneurship. And, and I want to mm-hmm. talk to you a little bit about that because it seems like the idea of entrepreneurship was, was really inculcated in you from a, a pretty early age. Like the, the idea of creating and, and having your own thing was, was really uh, an important part of what I guess what your parents talked to you about. Yeah, they did. In addition to that, my dad used to ask me and my mom sometimes if I was playing N64 too long or whatever, they would turn the game off and they would say, go learn about N64. Go figure out who makes this. How is it distributed? What are the production costs? What are the margins? What are the returns? Everything. Like, go learn about this business. And I just got in the habit of doing that for almost everything. It just became habit. When I went and worked at Google and I saw the enormous leverage it gave them to do whatever Google's in a million different businesses, you know, yeah. to do whatever they want. It just stoked that fire in me again. You know, if you build something, you just get to live differently. It's interesting because you entrepreneurship was, so, was sort of discussed at, at home. But you write that um, you were scared. Oh, yeah. You write that starting something on my own meant being alone. And I was hiding from that. And that really, 
you were initially reluctant to to do that. You you wanted a safe, secure job at a big company with benefits, and which is what most people kind of go for because we we all it's like the Maslow's hierarchy. We we all seek security, right? So how did you get the courage or or convince yourself to go and start something on your own? You know, I was hiding in a number of ways at that time. I would do creative projects on the side. I would write screenplays on the side, but always with a partner, always with another name next to my name in case it sucked, in case it was a failure. I could always hide and say, oh, the other person messed it up. You know, uh, my genius was blocked by so-and-so's sensibilities or whatever. I mean, I was doing that by working at a tech startup that I didn't start. You know, I wanted I wanted to be like the the kids who started Uber or the kids who started Snapchat or Instagram, whatever it was. But instead, I went and worked and became employee 12 at something else that somebody else had started. You brought it up, that fear that lives in being an entrepreneur. Well, the fear that was greater for me when I was 27 was seeing other friends really shoot their shot in artistic fields, especially writing, hmm. that, you know, just to be honest, that I didn't think were as talented as me. But I did, I think, understand the universe in a way at that point that it didn't really matter if they weren't as talented as me. They were at least a C minus and a C minus is enough to make it, I think, in this industry. So I was going to have to eat shit watching them ascend in something that was what I really wanted to do because I wanted to hide behind health insurance. And I think I was 18 months from 30. So I was 28 when I just sort of jumped ship. You did try for some time to start a, a business. You call, it was called Archer Genius Management. What was the business idea? Archer Genius Management was a consulting business mm-hmm. and my mentor at Google was a guy named Ed Bailey, and he had worked at McKinsey before he worked at Google. And he really knew how to think product strategy. He really knew how to think sales. And I was charming and smart. And so between the two of us, I could bring in clients with Ed's genius almost as the engine. It was enough, you know, to get by. Our biggest client was Condé Nast, um, and our small our smallest client was a basketball camp, which was probably making like five thousand dollars a month in revenue. And so we were we were scraping, you know, yeah. like we presented ourselves in a way that was fancy, or we tried to. But when Ed would come to New York, you know, for client meetings, he would sleep on a mattress on my floor because I had a studio with only a couch and a mattress. <laughs> so. That was uh, that was a tough time, man, because I was trying to look like I had some money so people would take us seriously, and I had none, but I learned so much about building a business through that process. What I love about this story is it's a classic story of searching for the thing that you would eventually want to do and do, right? And, and so you went to Google... And then you worked for a startup, and then you started your own consulting startup. But all the while, especially when you were working on Archer Genius Management, um, you were writing. Like, and, and I guess writing 
for you was almost like a coping mechanism. It was like almost like therapy, right? Because you were this was a lo- this entrepreneurship was a lonely pursuit, but writing was a way for you to kind of maybe work through some of those emotions. Yeah, it wasn't almost therapy. It was. It, it was yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I would write because I felt alone in classrooms. Yeah. Um, it was a way to go away into my imagination. When I got older, I would write to say the things to a girlfriend or a friend who I didn't know how to say the things I didn't know how to say to their faces. And then when I got on the work, you know, the work hamster wheel, the corporate hamster wheel, it faded to the background and it became a hobby and a place to escape. When I went to work at Dev Bootcamp, which was the tech startup, we taught coders how to program and we had mandatory yoga and mandatory therapy for them and so i started going to the therapy that was there for the students just because out of honestly just because it was i thought it was interesting and i wanted to hear myself talk and i had watched the soprano soprano stand i've watched the series five times and therapy is a big part of the sopranos so i was like all right let me go see what this therapy is about because it just seems fascinating and it unspooled so many tangled thoughts and feelings and ideas that I had had in my life that I hadn't, that I had not confronted. For someone that values confrontation, I had not confronted these things at all. When I left the startup and I found myself alone in a studio apartment in Brooklyn, I had no more therapy. I had nowhere else to unspool my thoughts. And I started putting them down on writing. And the way that I did it was writing that first TV pilot. That was therapy. It, that, that's what it is. You started to write a screenplay. Basically, it was a sto- it's a story of a, a young black genius who is working on a dating app that reads people's sexual chemistry that can basically – it's an incredible idea, right, if that was out in the world. <laughs> and, um, and, and when you were writing this story – I mean, did you have a goal in mind? Did you say, I'm going to turn this into a TV pilot one day? Or or was it just a creative outlet or a little bit of both? It was both. And it's always both. Not on purpose, but I thought the biggest version of that thing. It's imagination. You know, it's it's um, I fill up that dark, scary space of the unknown with just like, what is the most crazy Disney World version of this thing? And for that one, it was, I am going to make this show and I am going to star in this show and I'm going to make this app. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how you get from step 10 to step 15, but I can tell that step one is I need a pilot script because everybody's telling me that. And I see it in other industries. You want to get into music, you need an EP. If you want to go build a tech startup, you need an MVP of your product. So I'm like, I need my MVP. I needed the blood on the page so I could go show it to someone. And I went and started writing that that pilot at Baba Cool in a coffee shop in Fort Greene. I would walk there every day from Park Slope. I wrote my first TV pilot by myself with only my name at the top. You know, the rest, I don't have a scientific answer for. Not 10 steps away from where I wrote that freaking pilot, right across the street is 40 Acres and a Mule Studios. And I met Spike Lee sitting outside of a coffee shop. Wow. He was sitting on the promenade about 15 feet away. And he's unmistakable, right? I mean, everything about the way he looks and how he wears himself is unmistakable. And I 
I think there are these moments sometimes where there's just a door, you know, and you can either walk in the door or not walk in the door. And I don't know why in that day on that moment, I felt the boldness to walk to the door. And I said, how you doing, Mr. Lee? You know, I'll call me Spike. I was like, all right, Mr. Spike. And I told him I went to Morehouse where he went to college I told him everything but I told him, oh, I tried to be impressive. You know, oh, I used to work at Google. Now I'm doing this thing, my own consulting business, blah, blah. I just like started spewing him (laughs) with buzzwords and trying to be impressive and interesting. And after 30 minutes, he gave me 30 minutes of time. He gave me his email address. Wow. And I I emailed him, but I didn't say anything about my, my story. I didn't say anything about it. When we come back in just a moment how Chad musters the courage to finally tell someone about his screenplay and how he finds the inspiration to write his book, Black Magic. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2017, and Chad has just met Spike Lee without telling him about the TV pilot he's written. But my sister got married not long after that meeting, and the pastor who did the wedding used to be the president of Morehouse College. (laughs) He asked me what I was working on, and for whatever reason, I told him the thing I couldn't tell Spike, which was that I was writing this thing. And he's like, oh, can I see it? And I was like, ah, it's a little raunchy. It's got sex and this and that. He's like, man, I'm, you know, 60 years old. Just send me the pilot. So I sent him the pilot and I was sitting in the barber's chair one day and uh, I got a call from this random New York 212 number and I picked it up and the voice on the other end goes, yo, Chad. Uh, this is Spike. I'm like, Spike, who? You know, and he's like, oh, Spike, it's Spike, Spike Lee. He said, yo, come come meet me at 40 Acres on this day, this day, yada, yada. And I met up with him that day and I walk in and there's like this corridor to the right. I see Prince's guitar and Reggie Miller's game worn wow. shoes and Michael Jordan's jersey. To the left, I see a Martin Scorsese poster signed by Martin Scorsese and Denzel Washington mural. And then I walk into this giant room covered with just art and artifacts and just amazingly designed, beautiful, and a long wooden table. And sitting at the end of that table by himself, no one else in the entire building, is, you know, the legendary Spike Lee. Wow. And sitting in front of him on that table is my TV pilot that I wrote at a coffee shop with red markings on every single page. And, you know, I sat down with him and over two hours, however many hours, you know, he goes through page by page. And he's like, yo, this is how we're going to do this. We're going to take it here, 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 here. We're going to fly to Hollywood. It was pretty amazing, man. It is it is amazing. I mean, he saw, first of all, that he 
took the time to do that, right? Because you can imagine how much incoming somebody like Spike Lee gets, but that he also recognized the potential of this story and then basically says to you, let's do this. Like, I am going to work with you to see if we can make this happen. Yeah, he, I think he saw the story. He saw a voice. And and this is the part I appreciate now more than I did then. I think he saw an entrepreneur because that's what he is. And I, I think he saw someone who was going to pick up on how this game is played and learn the rules and figure out his own strategy for how he was going to engage this thing. You know, he was trying to get my engine started and then let me put my foot on the gas. And I think that's what he saw. I, I want to, it's, it's a slight digression because I want to, I want to come back to the story. Um, but, but you're a writer today and this is where all this, this whole journey ha- has led you to, which is a, a completely different kind of business that you've created. But, but you write that your voice as a writer actually comes from, from being alone for so many years yeah. and and spending so much time with your own thoughts and li- living in this this all-encompassing world of whiteness and you actually actually you interviewed lots of people for for your book for Black Magic about what black leaders and entrepreneurs learn from trauma and and they all basically said the same like a version of the same thing yeah it's i think it's that feeling of knowing something is true And knowing that you're not allowed to say it and and knowing that the rest of the room is going to behave as though it's not true. That is torturous. There's such a push and pull to decide which one of those voices, the one inside you or the one surrounding you, which one you're going to give more energy to, which one you're going to listen to, which one you're going to allow to be louder in your head. And I think most people, frankly give up on the one inside them because the one outside them seems to have all the power. And I think a writer is someone who that voice inside them is strong. It it, it can survive the onslaught. I wrote something about my feelings uh, last summer about, um, you know, George Floyd and the racial atrocities that were happening last summer that were so, so visible. And, um, it's terrifying to write those words down and send those words out into the world, knowing that you're going to make white people angry and knowing that they're going to try to tell you that what you think is true isn't true. But I got a lot of practice when I was young and a lot of black leaders, I think, get that practice every day where they work. Which is why you call the book Black Magic. Yeah, because you get it in scary environments. And also there's a witch hunt out for it, you know, it can be perceived as cunning in a way that is pejorative. They can be perceived as creative in a way that is not favorable, but it's ours, you know, and we earn it because we go through the bullshit. To be specific, we see people that we care about killed and imprisoned. We go to work every day and work for bosses who demean us and who use a different vernacular when they talk to us who give us a condescending rub on the shoulder, you know, like those are real discrepancies. Hmm. And so this shit that we get from that, that's ours, man. That black magic, like that stuff is real and it's ours. And uh, that's it. Yeah. You and Spike went and, and had 
lots of meetings with executives at, at, a, at a bunch of different production companies and distribution yeah. companies. And from what you write in the book, uh, the feedback was was more or less like, how is this different from the HBO show Silicon Valley, yeah. right? Like, like that was a question you were getting all the time, which I, mm-hmm. I can hear that question being asked to you again and again. I can hear you like quietly just seething and calmly answering the same question that you've already answered 15 times before. Yeah. And I'm doing it while sitting beside someone who, (laughs) in my eyes, is a legend. You know, someone whose movie, Malcolm X, was a created a formative experience for me. So, yeah. Yes. So when they asked that question about my very first TV series, this is not me with the voice I have right now. This is me with zero dollars. I would try to explain to them You know, and I'm sitting across, let's just call it what it is. Most of these networks, the executives who work there, they're not artists. Uh, They are former consultants and bankers. And I would try to explain to them, if you just take the cast of Silicon Valley and make them all black, you have an entirely different show, man. You have an entirely different set of principles and urgency and risks and stakes. That's a different show. With that said, that wasn't even what my show was. My show was about a dude living in Brooklyn who was sort of a prodigy, who was trying to make something great happen while being undermined by his blackness, you know, by his racial experience. But that's what what you get when you take people from... McKinsey and JP Morgan and Goldman and tell them now you're creative executives. You get um, a certain level of reduction in the way that they think about creative ideas. I think one of the most important things about this book is the perspective that it, it puts out into the world. And one of the things that really stuck with me was this idea that and it's sort of strange because I struggle with the idea of, of, I don't know, in any way portraying like any kind of trauma story as being redemptive because it's that shouldn't be the price to pay for growth, right? Trauma shouldn't be the price that people pay to become better people. But you write about trauma, surviving blackness gives you presence of mind, has made you more empathetic, resourcefulness, work ethic, on and on. You know what I mean? It's it's amazing that you have taken that experience and then reflected on it and said, you know, through that trauma, I have been able to become these things. Yeah. the the This isn't black privilege. These are not advantages. What it all nets out to is you can't escape the trauma. The trauma has already happened and happening. If you use these tools that you've adapted from suffering, you will have increased your chances of approaching an equal playing field. Hmm. What I am suggesting is that if you can stomach it, if you can go in the closet, take out those traumas and atrocities and examine them, then you will see that you have already adapted these skills. You already have them. You already use them sometimes innately by accident. You already code switch, which comes from some sense of empathy and listening and understanding and comprehension that you have deeply that other people don't have. Yeah. You already have faith just to walk out your front door every day when you inherently know the statistics of what can happen to you in doing so. You already have community because 
even if you don't have any black people in your neighborhood, the black people you listen to in your headphones, me right now who you're listening to in your headphones, mm-hmm. you know we have something in common. You know if I see you on an elevator, I'm going to give you a head nod because I because I know what you've been through. I don't know exactly. I don't I wasn't there. I don't know the specifics, but I have a good base of understanding. So if you already have these 15 tenets of black magic, I'll call them. Yeah. Then you might as well use them. And however you want to do that, talk through them with a friend, therapy, writing, reflection, journaling, whatever it is, music, however you express and however you you sort of examine your own life. I think it's worthwhile because you'll find that you have stuff that the people sitting at that cubicle next to you don't have. It's it's an incredibly optimistic, maybe optimistic isn't the right word because I struggle with the word optimism. Mm. I prefer possibility. Mm. But it is an incredibly hopeful way of taking all of the adversity and all of the personal trauma and kind of looking at it and saying, you know what, I actually have like a series of powers that come from that. And I I think it's really inspiring because I, it's not easy to come to that view. I don't think it's easy for anyone to come to that view. I, I will call it optimistic. Um, it is a tricky word. I do consider myself an optimist. And hmm. what I would add to it is this. Like the X-Men, if you have this superpower, but you allow it to be contextualized, confined, capitalized by someone else who doesn't have it, then you're making a choice. You're making a trade-off that I'm going to now give these gifts back to someone from the community of the people that made me have to get these gifts in a way that hurt me. And if you choose entrepreneurialism... If you choose to use these powers for something that you feel is important or something that you feel is expressive, I think that you only make them stronger. And then you go and you choose your partners, not your overlords. You choose the people who you want to also benefit from these powers. That's the optimistic lens on it for me is that I think it is best served to entrepreneurialism. I think all of these particular qualities serve entrepreneurs. I think when they live inside people who sit at a desk under a desk under a desk under an overlord, many of them go to waste. That's Chad Sanders. He's a writer and author of the book Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learned from Trauma and Triumph. By the way, that TV pilot Chad worked on with Spike Lee, it was purchased by BET in 2018 with the title The Archer Connection. Chad's forthcoming book is called New Money. Thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. 